Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. I'm a champion of economic growth and believe that growth can benefit all Americans. Yet, while the American economy has tripled in size from 1975 to 2015, average wages have barely risen. For too many Americans, family life is in decline, local communities are eroding, addiction has surged, and millions feel left behind by the global economy. The response from both political parties has been to double down on policies that have failed to address these very real concerns. Republicans have generally trusted that free markets, low taxes, less regulation will make everyone better off. Democrats sound committed to more worker-centric policies, but their actual agenda seems to be nothing more than pushing identity politics, 30s-era labor laws, and pursuing climate change to the ends of the earth. So what are we missing here? Maybe both sides have overlooked something crucial in their economic calculations. Joining me to talk about this is uh, Orrin Cass, who is a senior fellow at Manhattan Institute for Policy Research. He worked previously as the domestic policy advisor for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign, was a consultant at Bain and Company, and was an editor of the Harvard Law Review. Oren, well, welcome. Thanks for having me. So Oren, you've written a terrific book on the topic that I opened up with. Uh, so what are we missing? Well, I think what we're missing is work. We're missing that work matters and that consumption and consumer welfare and material living standards are all well and good and they're important and, and we certainly want those things. Uh, but that they're not enough, that you have to have a model of economic growth that allows everyone to, con to continue contributing productively, to achieve self-sufficiency, to support their families and communities. And if you leave that behind, as you leave people behind, uh, you're, you're not going to get the kind of flourishing society that, that we want. The, uh, the title of your book, The Once and Future Worker, uh, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, it's counter books. I've read it on Kindle. I tried to get it a hard copy. It's on its way. What's what's going on with the hard copies? We're we're sold out. Uh, we have we've struggled to keep it in stock, and and it's a month since publication, and and everyone's still waiting. But but more are in the truck. I'm told. So hopefully in the next week or two, everyone who wants a copy well, can get one. The publishing version of it's in the mail. It's in the truck. <laughs> <laughs> I have been told several times it's in the truck, but I have confidence this time it is. Now, I, I see this show as really two parts. One, you've got a very interesting diagnosis of the problem, but you've also got some prescriptions for the solutions, and you believe we can turn things around. We do have big cultural problems in America, drug problems, uh, uh, underemployment of a lot of people, and while the uh, unemployment rate is low, the labor participation rate is also not very high, and so we're seeing a lot of people who could be working uh, are not. So what are the drivers of this? 
Well, I think the way to understand what what has happened is to to really go back and and as you introduced to to really start kind of back in the 1970s and look at at what has happened since then, uh, which on the one hand you'd have to say we succeeded. I mean, the premise of our economic policy for a very long time has been built on this metaphor of the economic pie, right? That if if you expand the pie, everybody can have more, and and everybody likes pie, uh, and that's a very bipartisan view. Presidents on both sides use it. New York Times and Wall Street Journal both use it. Um, but but to take the metaphor too far, it, it ignores who's baking the pie. It says it doesn't really matter who is generating the growth, who is becoming more productive, uh, because you can always redistribute to the people who are left behind. And, and again, by those measures, we've succeeded. We've tripled GDP. We've quadrupled the size of the safety net. Uh, and so I, I sort of analogize it to you know, the classic romantic comedy heroine who sort of, who, who has everything she wants or so she thought, and yet something's wrong. We, you know, we realize maybe we've focused on the wrong things. And, and in policy area after policy area to achieve this model, yeah. um, we've really done it at the expense of a model that would have kept workers of all skills in all places in, included and, and kept the labor market healthy. I think one of your interesting insights is that we've been working with a abstract model of economic well-being. We've been working with an aggregate number called gross domestic product. And that was a statistical artifact of what, World War II, when we were busily ramping up our productive activity to fight Germany and Japan. And then uh, it, uh, it hung around. And long after the bombs, as you put it, after the saturation bombing ended, uh, GDP remained and remained a measure of, of economic power. Yeah, well, GDP is gross domestic product. So, yeah. so by definition, it, it is a measure of production in a sense. Um, and, and as you said, we first started caring about this, you know, when we were trying to recover from the Depression, when we were in a world war where, you know, who can make the most stuff really is the existential question. Um, but, but GDP is its problem is that it's an incredibly um, high-level aggregate measure. It tells you the total capacity of your economy, again, without reference to who is engaged in, in the economy. And so to the extent that all you care about at the end of the day is consumer welfare, then you say, well, we have tools for taking the total amount of stuff we produce and distributing around so that everybody gets some of it. Um, if you actually care about who is involved in the production, it gets much harder because you can't redistribute productive capacity. You can't easily take some people's jobs, some people's purpose in life and, and just tax some of it and, and send it to somebody else. That's not how it works. And so if you say, you know, it, it's not just consumer welfare that matters, it's the labor market, it's people's ability to engage and work and be supporting themselves. Um, then you have to look beyond GDP. It's not that GDP isn't important. It's not that growth isn't good. GDP is hugely important. Growth is is important. Growth is something we should want, but that can't be the end of the story. You have to be attentive to what kind of growth you're getting and, and who is actually participating in the growth. Well, I think you make the point that we could see GDP grow, pick a number, a billion dollars, small number, but let's use it for the math. And But if um, almost all of that went to 10% of Americans and the other 90% went to the rest, uh, 
we could then have a redistribution of that money via taxes and other transfer payments where you could equalize the effect on consumption. But what you're saying is that for the average American, if you don't have a job, you can't, you can't redistribute that work. And that, that not having a job is not only economically a problem, but it's uh, culturally corrosive. Yeah, and, and, and I think it's important to be really tangible about what we mean when we say work matters. I mean, it, it's, it's fine to say in kind of a moral sense, you know, work is important, um, but, but work is really important in a very tangible sense. I mean, what we know from social science research uh, is that work, you know, having work, having a job is incredibly important to self-esteem, to mental health, yeah. um, to happiness. And, you know, I, I, happiness studies can be a little bit squishy, but I think the good ones look at the same person over time. And they tell us two really important things. One is that most people kind of just have a baseline level of happiness. Some people are happier than others. And, and all of those major life events, births, deaths, marriages, divorces, even permanent disability, those cause blips. Uh, but you actually kind of return back to, you, you get used to almost anything. The only thing in the research that you don't get used to is unemployment. And people who lose work and don't get back to work move to a permanently lower level um, of satisfaction with their lives. So in, in really tangible ways, again, as you said, beyond the paycheck itself, um, and, and we should, you know, the paycheck's important too, um, work is, is incredibly important to well-being. Uh, and then that goes beyond just the individual. It goes to families. We know that especially mm -hmm. for men, work is important for family formation. Especially for men, it's really important for family stability. Uh, unemployment among men is a, a very strong predictor of divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's important for children and their outcomes. If you care about economic opportunity for kids, you have to care that their parents are working. Uh, and even more broadly, you have to care that they're in communities where the adults are working generally, even beyond your own family. Just growing up in, in a community where people are working has an influence on, on your own opportunity. So it's not enough, you know, it, it's not a moral statement to say it's not enough to redistribute people should work. It's, it's a tangible statement about the way this world is and, and what is actually key to having and, a healthy society. And, and, how, and how human beings behave in it and how they perceive themselves and their self-worth. Uh, in reading your book, it, I, I remembered something about Sigmund Freud and work. And so I, I, I looked up the quote and his quote, I don't know if we've come across it. He said, love and work, work and love. That's all there is. Love and work are the cornerstone of our humanness. And so you know, I think Freud was wrong about a lot of things, but I think he's absolutely right about that. And as you think about the way we identify with um, ourselves, you know, the question is, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a foundational question. You know, Yuval Levin, who's been on the show and is a good friend of yours and mine, um, good thinker, he said that you've really questioned the foundational assumption of modern econo economics that prosperity is best measured by ability to consume. He said, what if people's ability to produce matters more than how much they can consume? And uh, I, think, I think that is exactly right. Now, how is the, but how does this translate? I mean, I, I know I wanna get in descriptions of the problems, but let's say, okay, we're, we're gonna be setting pres presidential policy for the next president or this president. Um, how, do, how does this translate into specific policy actions that would emphasize work over consumption? 
So I think that's exactly the right question. And, and the way I think we have to think about it and, and where I'd love to, to see more of our policy debate focus is on the health of the labor market. The labor market is the mechanism in our economy that determines what kind of work is available, who's available to do the work, what it pays, where it is. Um, and if you actually care about work, and again, to emphasize not just work for the sake of work, work that allows people to support their families and communities, then you have to care about where the labor market comes out. Um, and, and the key gap here that I think poses such a challenge for our, our orthodoxy on both the left and the right is that there's nothing in economics that says the most efficient configuration of our economy, the fastest growth, um, is going to be one that gives you labor market outcomes that you like. Mm -hmm. The labor market, you know, left to operate freely is going to give you an efficient outcome. Uh, but if you actually have a social preference, if you actually care about what that outcome is, uh, then you have to care about where the labor market comes out. It's not enough to say whatever it gives us is a great solution. Uh, and, and so what I think that means for policy then is not, well, okay, just go in and, and command a particular result, right? I, I think for left of center folks in particular, the impulse is then to say, well, great, and then you, you, know, you raise the minimum wage, you create a job guarantee. You can, uh, you can intervene in markets in all sorts of ways that especially in the long run tend to make things worse. If you actually want a healthy labor market, then you recognize that a market is a, market is a processing mechanism. It takes the mm -hmm. conditions that it operates in and it spits out a result. And if you want a different result, then you have to look at, at the conditions. And so it's actually sort of core structural questions about how we've organized our society, uh, how we regulate our economy, how we educate young people, uh, how, we, how we interact in the global economy and define our borders. Those, those are the kinds of things we have to focus on. Let's, let's, I want to drill into how we'd actually implement something if we wanted to emphasize uh, you know, I, I was CEO of a public company, and you have certain agendas, certain expectations, maximizing shareholder wealth, revenue, earnings, so on and so forth. And but and driving costs down is also one of those things that helps you get your profits up. And we've seen a trend in 50 years where a lot of the decisions by major corporations have been, gee, I can make a, I can make a my sweatshirts more cheaply in Thailand than I can in Tennessee. And so therefore we're moving everything to Thailand and, and the people who used to make sweatshirts in Tennessee are kind of left looking around for what else there is to do in Tennessee. How would you, how would you, and this gets into thorny areas for those of us who believe in free trade. How would you, how would you go at that problem? What would you say? Assuming you were done Trump and you just tell them, <laughs> no, you can't well, leave. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I think it's a great example to work from. And I think yeah. the crucial thing to, to recognize when you talk about that example is you're actually talking about two different things happening. One thing is you're talking about the disruptive effect that we used to make sweatshirts for economy, our economy one way. And now we're talking about making them another way. Uh, and there are lots of things that cause disruption in the economy, right? You could also say we brought robots into the factory and then we needed fewer or different workers who could make the sweatshirts more cheaply. That kind of disruption can be a very good thing for the economy. What, what's gone wrong and what we have to worry about is when you go make those sweatshirts in Thailand uh, and there's nothing else that we make here instead. Uh, in other words, when you think about trade in the abstract, the, the word trade 
means a trade, right? If, if Thailand mm. is going to send us the sweatshirts, in theory, we should be sending them something in return. And if we do, then the effect on the labor market can be a very good one because you've just brought in this new supply of Thai workers who can produce for our economy. Mm-hmm. But you've also brought in a new set of customers somewhere else in the world who, who want to buy what our workers can do. And so what's gone wrong with trade, I don't think, is the fact that these disruptions occur. Uh, disruption, creative destruction is, is key to rising productivity and rising prosperity. What's gone wrong is we pursued a model where we said, that's great, move the factory to Thailand where it's cheaper, uh, and we don't care if there's something else that we now get to make instead. And in fact, a lot of the formal economic arguments, if you just care about consumer welfare, you actually celebrate if we don't have to make anything else instead. Right? You say, isn't this terrific? China or Thailand is, is sending us all this stuff, and we don't even have to send them anything in return. What a great deal. And that's, that's what a trade deficit is in a sense. And from a consumer perspective, a trade deficit can be a great thing. But if you actually care about labor market health and the trajectory of our economy and the opportunities for our workers, then you actually have to worry about trade deficits and say that trade has to actually be trade. There actually has to be something that, that we're making in return for the things that other people are making. Well, I ran into this, I didn't personally run into it, the county I live in in Virginia, Rappahannock, we had, a, we had an actual blue jeans factory there. And the year after NAFTA came in, the blue jean factory was shut down and we had, I guess we lost 70, 80 jobs. And so the question that I ask now as a former, as maybe a reformed pure free trader is that, gee, are, is a country better off because our, we can buy sweatshirts you know, for 40 cents cheaper at Walmart or we better off, would have been better off if those 80 people still had their jobs in Rappahannock? And when I've raised that with my libertarian friends, they basically take my head off and they say, you can't, you're not seeing this right. You're, you're, you're taking the benefits for the, just these few 80 people and you're making everybody else pay for their jobs. And that's inefficient. And that's a bad thing. Thoughts? In part it is. And, and that's why I emphasize this, this balance question that if we just try to preserve specific jobs and say, we don't want, you know, we want to avoid layoffs, let's say yeah. you can do that. But I think your libertarian friends are right that, that the, the, the costs economy wide, especially over the long run are going to be much, much larger uh, than, than what you're gaining. And so I think we have to recognize um, that over, you know, over the entire course of, of American history, um, those kinds of disruptions have in, occurred. Things have been made in different ways. I mean, you could ask the exact same question about bringing, you know, more technology into that blue jeans factory so that now they only need 40 people to do the work that used to, to use 80. Mm-hmm. You, you, could, you could ban the technology. You know, you could go all the way to the Chairman Mao model of saying, well, if we make them sew the blue jeans by hand, they'll have to hire 80 more people. Um, and, and that's not a recipe per, per prosperity. We actually, we need the productivity growth. We want to be making things in efficient ways, but we need to be attendant at, at the macro level to the labor market conditions. We need to trust that as this disruption is happening, as people are laying, being laid off, they're being laid off into an economy where there are going to be other opportunities for them, not into an economy where there are no other opportunities for them besides a disability check. But how do we bring about that outcome? And how do we, as you pointed, you, you point out some of the issues that affect the labor market, envi- environmental regulations, labor laws, 
and things like that, which makes it tougher to employ people and therefore has made it harder for people to get good jobs because these things uh, um, hurt, the, hurt, their, hurt their chances. But how do you, and then you talk about turning a regulatory dial one way or the other to, to make sure that overzealous regulation doesn't throw people out of work when we could have struck a better balance. How do you, who does, who's turning that dial and what are the, what's the dashboard look like to make these changes? Well, you know, the regulatory dial is one of the most discreet ones where there's, you know, there's legislation you can point to. There are regulatory documents being generated by the EPA that you can point to. Mm -hmm. The, you know, and, and let's, let's go into that one in a moment, but to just speak a little bit more broadly about it, um, you know, once you start focusing on this construct of, of the labor market's health, are we happy with the labor market's equilibrium? then, then it it's becomes very concrete to talk about, well, what are the conditions that influence how the labor market behaves? So the, the regulatory environment is a great example on the demand side of the labor market. What are the things that influence where investments get made in our economy? What kind of businesses get built? What kind of workers, um, owners of capital want to hire? And, and do they want to invest in their productivity? And what we've done, again, going back to, to the 1970s, is we've essentially said we want to make it as, as hard as possible to do anything in the physical economy. We're going to have every imaginable type and, and really much stricter compared to Europe, for instance, um, just incredibly tight environmental regulation that makes it especially costly to, to expand facilities, to build new facilities, to do major infrastructure projects. Uh, and you know, then we're going to have a, a model of labor regulation that's going to make you know, doing physical work, having large numbers of workers, particularly risky. Uh, and then on the flip side, we're going to say, you know, actions in the finance and technology sectors, you know, that's going to be essentially a wild west where you go do whatever you want and um, you can generate kind of very large profits, very high returns while using as few workers as possible. Well, and we've seen how well that can turn out. <laughs> well, and this is, I mean, that's not a, that's not a, you know, pounding yeah. on the table for, no, I know. here it is to do more regulation of someone. It's just, you know, it's an interesting dichotomy well, to see you know, where the investment yep. is and how we regulate. You have a very interesting chapter in the book on the impact of environmental laws. Do we have any statistics on how many jobs might have been lost to uh, overzealous uh, environment, environmental regs? I've never seen a good statistic across all environmental regs. I think there yeah. are, are two really useful ways to think about it. One is that we have very good economic studies of the specific impact of the Clean Air Act. Because the way the Clean Air Act works, depending on the pollution in your air, in your county, you can be designated as basically mm -hmm. a good county or a bad county. And if you get designated bad county, you face much tighter restrictions. Yeah. Uh, and so you can do econometric analyses that then compare what happens to industrial activity in the good versus bad counties. Uh, and what you find is that the bad counties see much, much lower levels of investment, many fewer, uh, you know, 25 to 45% decline in new facilities, loss of at least half a million jobs, substantial permanent declines in earnings for the people in those industries. And so that's one way to, to see the, the substance of it. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's important to recognize, though, is that there's also kind of the counterfactual that we can't know for sure, which is that. We never in our cost-benefit analyses, and we never, you know, if we try to do economic analysis, there's no way to know what, what could we have accomplished if, if we hadn't had all of these restrictions. And so I always point to the example of fracking, where if you think about all the controversy over fracking right now, and imagine, 
you know, right back when that those initial um, natural gas wells were being fracked, say they'd been on public land, mm -hmm. say there'd been a bunch of protests and EPA had come in and said, we're going to ban fracking, right? At that point, if you'd done the analysis, how many jobs would you have said you were killing? 500, 1,000? Mm -hmm. You wouldn't know that the counterfactual is if, if you actually let the fracking boom happen, you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs, hundreds of billions of dollars in, in investment in the U.S. becoming the world's leading energy producer. Um, so we know that, that we have cracked down so aggressively. We can see discrete places where it's had effect. Um, and, and it's more of an open question, you know, how much better could we have done if we'd continued to value this kind of industrial activity? You know, going deeper into this, it's not just about the economics. One of the things that's fascinating is that well, we both we both will agree that growth is economic growth is extremely important, mm -hmm. and that increasing wealth overall is a socially good thing. Uh, it allows us to do a lot of other things. It frees people up from certain drudgery type jobs and so on and so forth. So there, there, we're not saying growth is bad, but there are trade offs that you're talking about. And that getting at this a little deeper, though, it seems like we're overvaluing economics. We're overvaluing just the financial impact of everything. And we talk about tax policy and regs and stuff like that. And we do the economic analysis or we do a static budget or a dynamic budget or whatever. It's all about the, it's all about the uh, symbols in the spreadsheet and not mm -hmm. necessarily about the underlying lives. And where you're going with this is you're really, was it George Will wrote a book called Statecraft is Soulcraft? Yes, I like that I, book a lot. I must admit, I never read a lot of it, but I love the title. <laughs> it seems like you're getting into the statecraft as soulcraft uh, business with this book. Thoughts? Yeah, I, I, that's my, my hope is that that's part of the discussion. And, and I think it's important to recognize that, that it's not just to say, I agree there's a lot that's important besides economics that, that needs to weigh into the equation. Um, but also to recognize that it's we have something of a knowledge problem, which is that um, you know the models that we are able to build that tell us how to promote economic growth are by necessity narrowly focused on the things that are easiest to quantify. So we have you know out to multiple decimal point models of what the effect of a given tax rate is on your annual GDP growth, and so that prompts an awful lot of debates about how to promote GDP growth with tax policy. Um, I think tax policy is relevant to GDP growth. I think at the end of the day, though, you know, what we've seen over the, over the long run in, in human history and across countries is that, is that GDP growth is a product of a healthy society. Um, specific policies, you know, the incentives, these things matter, right. but so does whether or not kids are being raised in good environments, whether or not your you know, communities are healthy, whether or not people feel optimistic and included. Um, and so just because I can't give you an economic model with a score on what the, you know, what the cost of losing those things is, it doesn't mean it's not important. Uh, and I think we should take notice that after so many years of trying as hard as we could to quantify and focus on you know, economic drivers of economic growth, economic growth is kind of stalling out. Productivity growth is at an all-time low. And so I think we would benefit from, from, as you said, emphasizing that economic growth is incredibly important, but thinking of it more as an emergent property of a healthy society. It's not that we go for the growth and count on everything else we like to come out of it. 
It's that we need to have a much more serious conversation about what we actually like and what we actually care most about in society uh, and have a little bit more faith that when we get those things right, uh, growth is likely to be one of the things that comes with it. Well, I, you've stipulated, I, I, the, the idea that work is essential to all of us and, and it, it, you know, I heard Freud's phrase a little differently. It's our link to reality in a way. It's the way we know we're, effic- we're effective in the world and any work. It's not just being a nuclear physicist. It's working in, you know, you know we're working on a machine in a plant or even pushing a broom in the plant. You've got to get a piece in the, in the world and, and you're doing something and you could feel good about that. Yes. If you're able to earn enough to support a family. And one of your definition, one of the things you say is that the role of work in America would be for people who are working to be able to support a family and support the community and the and their and their cities and their towns where they are in a way that that made them feel like they were um, contributing citizens. Mm-hmm. Did I capture that right? I didn't find your quote, but is that pretty much my paraphrasing? Well, well that's your, uh, right, and I, and I'm glad you're pushing on that because you know I I said earlier it's important to to focus tangibly on why work is important and not just say it as a make it a, a moral point. And so I think step one in that is to to recognize all the critical links between work and all of these personal and social outcomes we care about, but then you still need to explain the why, right? If the reason that work was so important to mental health and raising kids and so forth was because getting up at the same time every day is key. Like if if that turned out to be why work mattered, then the answer to all of this would be you know, free alarm clocks. Um, so, So you're asking exactly the right next question, which is, Okay, once we, you know, even if we agree work matters, we still have to agree on why work matters. Right. Um, and, and, and the further we go down this, the more it becomes a very philosophical con- discussion, and we have to rely a little bit more on our intuition and our experience. Um, but fortunately, we have a lot of intuition and experience in, in, uh, in our society to draw on. And, and I think what you described is exactly right, that work for individuals provides a sense of purpose. It, it, mm-hmm. it. Um, responds to the obligations that have been defined by for the person to be a productive contributor, to be self-sufficient, and it provides the means by which they then fulfill those obligations. Um, it then also has a lot of just really useful, tangible day-to-day effects. I mean, I joked a little bit about getting up on time, but getting up on time is well, a no. That's of, actually a, that's a good yeah, thing. Having having yeah. somewhere to go every day, yeah. um, you know. Ha- Paying attention to your personal hygiene, having other people, you know, the, yeah. the other orientation that comes with having to care about coworkers and customers, all of those things are critical. And, and it's also really important to, to think about the flip side of it, which is what are people doing if they're not working? And there's now this kind of debate about universal basic income. And, you know, if we just embrace this redistribution model of, of yeah. sending checks to people who don't work. You know, well, it could be great. Maybe they'd become poets and start businesses and learn how to paint. And but that's not what happens. <laughs> no, and look, are there individuals who would do that? Absolutely. Okay. We have pretty good data, actually, especially for young men, on what they do when they're not working. And it's not those things. It's sleeping and watching TV. Well, uh, the, and, and that's what, not the right foundation for a society. And there, there, there are even more headlin- headwinds than what we've talked about because there's a there's a kind of demonization of work, or at least a demonization of certain types of jobs. There was an article I saw recently in 
are 40% of the jobs in America dead-end jobs. I mean, the left, and I will say it's the left, has, has been demonizing work and demonizing certain types of jobs and really emphasizes only, only the money parts of the jobs and none of the other cultural and, and psychological benefits of jobs. And, you know, we now with AI, artificial intelligence, have some very, very smart people in Silicon Valley saying, well, look, when we succeed at what we're working on, 90% of America won't, need, won't be able to have a job. And so we're just going to have to ship them money while we, uh, while we fiddle with our artificial intelligence machines. I think it's a pernicious idea. I think it's wrong, but that's out there. Well, I think we, we agree. I, I, I should say, I, I think you're letting the right off too easy when you say the kind of dead-end job mentality is, is a left it of could center. be. Um, in I'm, my, I'm a partisan. I'm a partisan. <laughs> <laughs> in, I, I think if, if, if I had to assign the blame, I think it is maybe more pernicious on the left, but there's certainly no share of folks right of center who have certainly similar attitudes in their own line, you know, that they sure. will express off the record, whether or not they find it politically viable to express them. Um, and, and, and so I do think, you know, we should talk about AI, but even just, there's a cultural discussion to have here about, again, if we think about why we value work, why work is important, you know, what the cultural salience of it is and what it means to be, you know, to have respect for the work that you do and to realize that the concept of a dead end job is nonsensical because the point of work isn't to move up an organizational chart. That's fine if your personal goal is to move up an organizational chart. But as for the reasons we were just discussing about why work matters, organizational chart is beside the point. Work matters right. because it's something that you do that lets you, you know, that makes you a contributor. And it's something that allows you to support your family. And it's something that gives you purpose. And it's something that gives you interaction with the outside world. And none of those things have anything to do with an organizational chart. And, and frankly, you know, a lot of the jobs that we consider high status jobs, um, don't look so good on those metrics. You know, the, a lot of what we would call lower status jobs, folks who are working harder for less pay in really important roles in our communities, by any objective measure, those should be the high status jobs. And so, you know, I'm not here to change human nature, but, but I do think we should really aggressively um, reject the, the concept of dead end job and say that's not the right way to talk. Well, we've got a cultural bias now against these types of jobs, and it's really out there. And you point out that we needn't accept this as a, a, a fact of nature. But in fact, if our leaders, if people on TV, if people in the media, if everybody gets behind a different attitude about work, there's a whole lot we could do, a whole lot of levers we could push. It would be cultural levels and le levers and not necessarily just policy levers. And that would, that would change the landscape. Yeah, and, and I think the way to understand what's happened is that this is the, the cultural um, side of the economic trend we've just been talking about, which is to, you know, that underlying all of this is this shift toward a focus on consumerism and kind of individual happiness um, as we see it through a consumer lens. Um, and, and in economic terms, we've talked about what that meant for kind of just redistributing economic pie rather than focusing on production. But the exact same thing has happened in cultural terms as we've started to treat the job as something that's kind of, you know, you should be following your passion and doing what you love and changing the world and that work is your path to self-actualization. And again, if that's how someone feels about their job, that's fine. But as we've started to define that as, as what a job is good for, 
that it's not about fulfilling obligations and supporting yourself. It's supposed to be what gives, you know, makes you happy and is fun and gives you meaning. Um, most jobs aren't going to be adequate by that standard. Mm -hmm. And so just as in the economic sphere, we have to resist this idea that whatever you think makes you happy in the moment is actually what's going to make us happy. Um, it's, it is this parallel cultural discussion that has to happen. And, and, and as you said, um, it's a cultural discussion that can happen. I mean, I don't know if you remember, there was this, this fight a couple or uh, controversy a couple months ago over so-called job shaming, where a former star from the Cosby show got, uh, got photographed bagging groceries at Trader Joe's. And some tabloid was trying to, you know, yeah. you know, this to embarrass him. And there was this tremendous outpour of rejecting that and saying, wait a minute, that's wrong. This guy is working in his community to support himself and his family. How disgusting that you would, you know, try to shame him over this. And, and there was unanimous agreement on that point. So I actually take that to be good news. I think if, if people realize that this mattered, that how our culture thinks about work, what it means to typical uh, workers, that, that, actually, that that's important. Um, that's a, we already have agreement on the underlying point that we, we should respect those things. We just need people to realize that this is actually an important thing to bring to the forefront of, of what we're focused on in our society. Uh, I need to interrupt just a second here. It's in Oren's contract, his book, uh, The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America, hardcover and counter books. It's available instantaneously on Kindle through Amazon. And as we happily pointed out at the beginning of the show, the hardcover right now has been sold out. It's in the truck and you can probably get a hardcover probably in the next couple of weeks, beginning of 2019. Sound right? Yeah. Just go order it and they'll send it to you as soon as they can. Okay. What, what, what do you have to lose? <laughs> um, we, there's a lot to cover in your book. It's just very interesting and it goes pretty deep into things that are, I think people need to be thinking about. Uh, one of the things I wanted to get at was the prescription. We've got the diagnosis and you mentioned three major reforms. You talk about a, a shift in the safety net, uh, reestablish an income gap, uh, and then, uh, the flexibility of the safety net and, uh, and so on and so forth. And what could you elaborate on the reforms in the, in the few minutes that we've got left? Yeah, sure. So, you know, as you said, we've talked about a bunch of areas of reform in terms of, of regulation, in terms of how we think about trade. Um, you know, I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of education. And, and you have one big one. I set you up for your big one. So I want you yes. to talk about the um, and, and organized. <laughs> well, I was just, I always want people to realize that, that, it's a lot of things that you don't intuitively think are, oh, that's, that's connected to these problems that we're having. Yeah. You know, college for all, it's a big part of the problem we're having. Cheering on the demise of unions, it's a big part of the problem that we're having. Um, but as you said, in, in kind of public policy terms and, and what we think of as the federal government, the, the big things we fight about in Washington, uh, one of the huge ones is how our safety net operates. Uh, and from a, you know, from a consumer-focused model, as that was taking over in society, it's when we launched the war on poverty and had this really aggressive effort to say, look, we can address the problem of poverty in this country by creating enough programs to give people the things they need to raise up their material living standards. Uh, and so at this point, we have a safety net that, that we spend more than a trillion dollars on every year. Hmm. Uh, and, 
And again, by its own definition, it has succeeded. In, in material terms, we've done an incredible job meeting people's basic needs um, and reducing what, what gets called the consumption poverty line. Um, but, but as is implied in that, uh, meeting the consumption poverty line doesn't actually lift people out of poverty. It just assures that they're gonna need the same thing again next year. Uh, and in fact, when you do uh, this approach, you have a huge problem, which is that you create a system that says, here's everything you get if you're not working. Mm -hmm. And as you start working, we actually start taking these things away. So economically, you, you actually discourage work in a lot of cases. And culturally, you, you take away this idea that work is sort of a, a fundamental path to supporting your family because not work starts to, to kind of look a lot like work. In that well, and, and, you know, Section 8 housing, housing policy, where if you get subsidized housing and then if you start making money, you, get, you lose your housing. And that's, that's not really an incentive. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, some of these programs, Section 8 is a perfect example where it's kind of binary, right? Either, either you have the housing or you don't. Um, <laughs> the entire disability program has a, a similar problem where almost by definition, the premise is to get the money, you have to show that you can't work. And so, and so actually going and trying to work can disqualify you. Yeah. Um, but then, but, but in even other, you know, even when you talk about food stamps, the more money you earn, the less food stamps you're eligible for and, and so on. Um, and, and so the, the alternative to this that I don't think should replace all or even most of the safety net, but should be part of the discussion is what I call a wage subsidy, uh, which is the idea that just like we take money out of every paycheck. So this, this is the big idea in the book. This is, uh, this is, this is the, uh, all roads lead to this, or is this one of many ideas? I, I, knowing you, you probably have got 30 or 40 other ones, but let's talk about I, this one. Yeah, I'd say it's one of many. It's, it's certainly yeah. one that people are interested in talking about. It's certainly the most expensive one, which in a sense makes it the biggest, but in, in another sense makes it the hardest. I mean, a yeah. lot of the other things we've talking, talked about, the nice things is it's not a budget issue at all. It's, it's a structural issue. Um, but certainly in, in budget and spending terms, this is the big one. Um, so just like we take money out of paychecks for payroll taxes from your first dollar of earnings, uh, we could put money into low wage paychecks and right under your, your tax withholding line, you could have a work credit line, hmm. uh, that, that puts money into your paycheck. So your $8 an hour job suddenly becomes an $11 an hour job. Uh, and, and if you did that, you get, you get three really powerful effects. The, the obvious one, but the one that I think is actually least important is you, is you get more money to low income households mm -hmm. and, you know, on balance, that's a good thing. But as we've been talking about, that's we have lots of ways to get resources to low-income households, um, and, and that's not sufficient. Um, it also has really powerful labor market effects. On, on the supply side, when you think about it from the perspective of workers, uh, it makes jobs much more attractive to take. Uh, you're going to make work much more attractive relative to non-work, uh, and it's going to be right there in in what looks like the the, the wage you're being offered. So you're you're going to get people back into the workforce, get people stepping onto that first rung. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, get young people seeing this as something to to start doing. Um, but then the the other side is going to have an effect on employers. That you know, this is something that some people criticize the wage subsidy for, but I think it's a benefit. Um, probably less than half, but a, a portion of the benefit goes to the employer too. When you subsidize something, you encourage both sides of the transaction. And so you're going to make it more attractive for employers to create these kinds of jobs. You're going, in, instead of today where, you know, if you are a low wage employer, we attack you and ask, you know, and, and shame you and, and treat you as if you're doing something wrong. Yeah. 
again, both socially and economically, this policy says, no, you're doing something really socially valuable, investing in this kind of business, focusing on these kinds of workers. As as a business owner, many times over, I would love to have something that would subsidize hiring somebody that I couldn't otherwise hire. because it, it, there's a certain level of satisfaction. We talk about non-economic. There's a lot, a lot of satisfaction in bringing people into your business and helping them uh, get good at what they do. Maybe promote it. Maybe if you even lose them because they go to somebody else because they've gotten so good, that's okay because uh, that's part of the satisfactions of running a business. No, that that's right. And and it's. I think most business owners feel that way and yeah. and will express that sentiment as you did. The reality is, though, is that it's hard and it's risky. Um, and so, you know, if, if it's something that has a lot of social value, we shouldn't shy away from the idea that um, we celebrate and want to encourage the employer behavior, too. Um, and, and so when you think about how do you make the labor market work better, how do you create more opportunities for, for workers, especially at the low end, if you want more of something, you can subsidize it. Uh, and so taking, you know, if what I'm describing costs maybe $250 billion a year. So taking about a quarter of our safety net and instead of saying a hundred, you know, almost a hundred percent of our safety net is going to be uh, either ignoring work or discouraging work. You know, let's keep three quarters of it there. There are a lot of folks who really need that support, but gosh, let's, let's at least have a quarter of it focused on this model that's actually encourages work and is attached to work. Uh, I think would be would be an incredible step. Has, has, has this been tried anywhere? Uh, there, there was a so, universal basic income experiment in a couple of countries. It, it didn't work, but never. But has this been tried? Yeah. So the wage subsidy delivered through a paycheck hasn't been descri- hasn't been used broadly. Mm-hmm. We have in this country a system called the earned income tax credit. Sure. Um, which is supposed to be conceptually similar. Uh, the problem is it only goes to certain groups of people. And it comes in a giant, comes in a $5,000 chunk at the end of the year. It's not the right way to do it. Um, In the paycheck is the right way to do it. And uh, Senator Marco Rubio and and his staff actually went through the process of figuring out how to do it because they proposed it as a a reform for Puerto Rico, whose whose labor market is especially broken. They could use Uh, some help in Puerto Rico. Yeah. And and especially have these challenges, you know, uh, on labor market and and less skilled workers. And so... Uh, so we know it can be done technically. Uh, we know that the effects of subsidizing work can be positive and 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 create the kinds of effects you want in the labor market. Um, but doing on a and and I think you know piloting it first would be a very sensible way to start. Um, but but it's the right direction to push. Oren, thank you. Uh, thank you. Fascinating topic. You've dug deep in something. Hopefully, we can get a sea change of. Uh, of ideas about this and get people thinking about work differently. I hope you're in the vanguard of that. Again, it's in Oren's contract, the once and future worker, a vision for the renewal of work in America, Encounter Books, Amazon. Uh, I encourage everybody to uh, take a look at it. It's uh, There's a lot new here and a lot that's very interesting. And uh, Oren, have you back again. We'll talk again and dig in deeper into this. So thank you very much. I'd like to clarify, I don't have a contract and it's not in my contract, but thank you as well. It was a very good discussion. (laughs) Okay, thanks. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes.
Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com slash apply. That's amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.